Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 31st day of May, 2009. I'd like to welcome all my listeners to the Corbett Report and invite them all, as always, to check into the websites CorbettReport.com and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com where you can find examples of our previous work, including previous episodes of this podcast, articles, interviews, videos, and other works created by the Corbett Report in the past. For those of you keeping track at home, you might note that tomorrow, June 1st, marks the second anniversary of the Corbett Report and the Corbett Report podcast. So taking a moment to reflect on the 88 podcast episodes, 84 interviews, 73 videos, and literally hundreds of articles that I have written or conducted or created for the Corbett Report over that time, I would like to once again thank each and every one of my listeners for your generous support of this podcast and your continuing efforts to get the word out about this information. And I'd like to say once again that without your support and your help, this podcast and everything I've accomplished so far would not have been possible. I would like to be so bold as to ask for your continued support over the coming weeks and months, and especially to watch in the summer for new projects which I'll be launching in order to take the website to a completely different level. But of course, I will need your continued support in order to do that, so I ask you to help me build this site together over the coming year. And on an entirely different note... This week I received a communication through my YouTube account from a listener in Canada who believes that his ISP is actually blocking the Corbett Report website. Now, of course, if you are encountering that problem and yet are still able to listen to this podcast somehow, please try to contact me either through the website or, of course, through my YouTube account and let me know if you are experiencing that difficulty. If in the future you ever notice that you are unable to connect to the website for a lengthy period of time, please note that we have been uploading episodes to archive.org lately, and I will make a concerted effort to try to get at least the last 20 or so episodes loaded into archive.org. So, of course, you can go to archive.org and search for The Corbett Report to find past episodes of the podcast. And now, without further ado... Let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from thetelegraph.co.uk, 30th of May 2009. 
U.S. Defense Secretary Robert Gates warns North Korea. Robert Gates, the U.S. Defense Secretary, delivered a stark warning to North Korea on Saturday, declaring that America would not stand idly by while the regime threatened to wreak destruction with nuclear weapons. Instead, Mr. Gates urged tough sanctions against North Korea and pledged that Washington would not accept its position of a nuclear arsenal. Kim Jong-il's regime was, he said, starving its own people in order to develop weapons of mass destruction. Mr. Gates's unequivocal message came during a conference of Asian defense ministers in Singapore. In his audience were representatives of the countries most threatened by Mr. Kim, South Korea and Japan, and a delegation from China, North Korea's only ally. Dependent on the charity of the international community to alleviate the hunger and suffering of its people, North Korea's leadership has chosen to focus the North's limited energies and resources on a reckless and ultimately self-destructive quest for nuclear weapons, said Mr. Gates. The policy of the United States has not changed. Our goal is complete and verifiable denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, and we will not accept North Korea as a nuclear weapons state. Today's second real news story comes from the New York Times, May 30th, 2009. Contractors vie for plum work, hacking for the United States. The government's urgent push into cyber warfare has set off a rush among the biggest military companies for billions of dollars in new defense contracts. The exotic nature of the work, coupled with the deep recession, is enabling the companies to attract top young talent that once would have gone to Silicon Valley. And the race to develop weapons that defend against or initiate computer attacks has given rise to thousands of hacker soldiers within the Pentagon who can blend the new capabilities into the nation's war planning. Nearly all of the largest military companies, including Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin, and Raytheon, have major cyber contracts with the military and intelligence agencies. The companies have been moving quickly to lock up the relatively small number of experts with the training and creativity to block the attacks and design countermeasures. They have been buying smaller firms, financing academic research, and running advertisements for cyber ninjas at a time when other industries are shedding workers. The changes are manifesting themselves in highly classified laboratories where computer geeks in their 20s like to joke that they are hackers with security clearances. Our final real news story today comes from the Times Online, May 24, 2009. Billionaire Club in Bid to Curb Overpopulation America's richest people meet to discuss ways of tackling a disastrous environmental, social, and industrial threat. Some of America's leading billionaires have met secretly to consider how their wealth could be used to slow the growth of the world's population and speed up improvements in health and education. The philanthropists who attended the summit convened on the initiative of Bill Gates, the Microsoft co-founder, discussed joining forces to overcome political and religious obstacles to change. Described as the Good Club by one insider, it included David Rockefeller Jr., the patriarch of America's wealthiest dynasty, Warren Buffett and George Soros, the financiers, Michael Bloomberg, the mayor of New York, 
and the media moguls Ted Turner and Oprah Winfrey. These members, along with Gates, have given away more than 45 billion pounds since 1996 to causes ranging from health programs in developing countries to ghetto schools nearer to home. They gathered at the home of Sir Paul Nurse, a British Nobel Prize biochemist and president of the private Rockefeller University in Manhattan on May 5th. The informal afternoon session was so discreet that some of the billionaire's aides were told they were at security briefings. Stacy Palmer, editor of the Chronicle of Philanthropy, said the summit was unprecedented. We only learnt about it afterwards, by accident. Normally these people are happy to talk good causes, but this is different. Maybe because they don't want to be seen as a global cabal, he said. Welcome to episode 88 of the Corbett Report. You are being programmed. So, you've just finished listening to a particularly disturbing episode of the Corbett Report podcast about live avian flu viruses being mixed in with flu vaccines, and the swine flu perhaps having originated in a vaccine lab. So, in order to escape the cares of the world, you decide to turn on the television set And as the comforting blue glow starts to envelop your living room, and as the scientifically engineered flicker rate of the television begins to slow your brainwaves down into a sub-sleep state, you decide to turn on that wonderful NBC comedy series, 30 Rock, starring Alec Baldwin and Tina Fey. There you are. Leo's giving out flu shots. Count yourself lucky you're getting one of these. He only has five left. Lemon, I need you to tell me who on your staff is important enough to get one. Hold on, you're rationing health care? That's not okay. Like it or not, you're one of us now. One of the elite. I am still way more like those people than you. And I don't want anything they don't get. Lemon, you don't want to get sick. It's not about that. It's about fairness. I don't want the shot. Are you ready for your shot? If my crew can't get a shot, I'm not getting a shot. Hey, you tell them, Liz. God bless you, crew man. We gotta fight the power. Yeah! yeah. Fight the powers yeah. that be! Yeah! yeah. <laughs> oh, God, they're all sick. <laughs> they're all diseased. Give me the shot. I want to go on my vacation. I take back all the stuff I said. Yeah, fight the powers that be by demanding your right to get a flu shot because, you know, everyone needs one and, of course, it'll protect you from the flu, so you've got to demand it and stick up for your rights. Yeah. Well, maybe not. Okay, so perhaps the 30 Rock producers, writers, directors, and actors haven't listened to episode 86 of The Corbett Report. And perhaps they haven't read articles from sites like ecochildsplay.com, 22nd of May 2009, the flu shot, kids who get it are more likely to be hospitalized. That talks about a recent Mayo Clinic study that shows that kids, especially those with asthma, are three times more likely to be hospitalized after getting a flu shot than those who don't. 
And it also contains information about a Harris poll that's been conducted over the past three flu seasons that show that you're on average about 30% more likely to contract the flu, regardless of your age, after receiving the flu shot than if you had received no shot at all. But, of course, all of that aside, I'm sure the 30 Rock producers are just trying to be socially conscious and raise public health awareness about key issues related to health and safety, like flu vaccines, because as the recent swine flu outbreak has shown us, it's very important to maintain your health and hygiene by getting vaccinated. And besides, as we all know, a TV series that contains a rather hidden allusion to Rockefeller in the title must be concerned for the greater good of society. Of course, there is another possibility, and that possibility is that the powers that be, by which of course I would mean NBC and their parent company GE and the Council on Foreign Relations members who comprise the boards of those companies, are in fact perhaps using their media outlets in order to create a propagandistic message, one that will only serve to reinforce what people are hearing from their trusted medical authorities about the safety of the flu vaccine. But of course, that's just silly, because we know that television networks would never have editorial control at the top that forces all the content and programming to push a certain political agenda, right? We want to set an example to others in our industry and other industries that uh, no matter what the size of your carbon footprint is, you can make a difference. Out of staple on record. Global warming. Probably. Press button to see what global warming will do in the next three years. Three years is a long ways away. What could we do on a practical level to start making a difference? Just had another thought. What if the Scared Straight Show had a green message too? The biggest thing we've done is inserting messages about the environment into uh, some of our content. I don't follow. Green, it means environmentally friendly. The lifeblood of our company is the quality of our TV shows, and we would accomplish nothing if we compromised that quality. Going green doesn't fit with the rest of the show. We'll work your magic, make it fit. Hey, Brian, I'm not going to recycle this aluminum can. I'm just going to throw it in the trash. Your Earth's bitch. The most powerful way that we could communicate the commitment on behalf of our company was to change the practices within the production, as well as work in a message about global warming, about environmental changes, and about um, empowering people to take responsibility. Now, for those of you with a stronger stomach than I, perhaps you can stomach the rest of that video. And if that's the case, then I'll direct you to an article from Infowars.com from March 6, 2009. Fox admits to planting political brainwashing in popular TV shows that has both that video and some commentary about that video. But long story short, yes, that's a corporate PR video put out by Fox in March of this year which brags about how they've inserted green, climate change, global warming, carbon footprint messages into virtually every program that they run. So once again, top-down editorial control by Rupert Murdoch or the few at the top, 
telling everyone how things are going to work throughout the entire corporate agenda. No surprise there. Indeed, I think it probably doesn't come as much of a shock to any of my regular listeners that, yes, indeed, the medical industrial complex or the climate industrial complex that the Wall Street Journal wrote about and that we covered a couple of weeks ago on this podcast or any of the other big corporate interests and conglomerates, because, of course, as we know, they're all one at the top, use their media outlets as a source of brainwashing and propaganda to simply push their political agendas on the unwitting masses. In fact, I think that's probably pretty clear by now to all of my listeners. But perhaps there's a deeper level to all of this, uh, something that goes beyond merely pushing a base political agenda in a straightforward way through sitcoms or the like. And it's at this point that I'd like to turn to the researcher who I think has pioneered the study of this type of information and who has really done the most to bring it to people's attention, Alan Watt. Now, of course, my listeners might remember that Alan Watt was, in fact, a big name in the music industry at one point and has apparently played with some of the biggest names in rock music. So he does know a thing or two about the culture creation industry, as he calls it. And on November 23rd, 2006, uh, he released a special audio commentary, a blurb, as he calls it, on CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, an hour-long commentary dealing with precisely this topic of how the culture creation industry is used to push certain political agendas and messages uh, to the public through mass media. The term that Alan Watt uses for this, and which I suppose is probably that which is used by the powers that be, is predictive programming, i.e. it is called programming for a reason, you are being programmed when you watch these programs. So let's get this articulated and fleshed out in its historical context by, again, an excellent researcher and someone that I really would ask my listeners to support and that you can do so by, of course, going to CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and buying some of the books or DVDs or CDs that Alan Watt has on sale. And again, I wholeheartedly recommend that people check into his free podcast as well. But right now, let's listen to an excerpt from the November 23rd, 2006 blurb that he released on predictive programming. Hi, folks. This is Alan Watt. It is November the 23rd, 2006. Tonight, I'm bowing to a little bit of pressure. I don't normally bow to any kind of pressure. But this will tie in with some of the talks I've given in the past. And it's about the culture creation industry, how ideas are downloaded into people's minds via fiction primarily, using high drama, high drama with emotion, emotion plus crisis, a situation in a movie and drama um, is a tremendous method of getting uh, points across. It's almost like coupling an idea with the drama and it's downloaded like a virus into your subconscious and you're being programmed and it's called predictive programming. The technique is ancient and it's an old, old science. Plato in his Republic talks about 
the, the, the culture industry of his own day and how it, it was essential not only for maintaining control over the people by the elite, but that they had to control everything that was given to the public. In other words, anything the public saw in drama on stage was authorized. Not only was it authorized, in ancient Greece, traveling troops of players would come into the cities and do the rounds, and it was compulsory to attend. Everyone, even the slaves, had to attend at least one performance. Because, just like today, they had their agenda and their schedule and their upgrading of the system. And it was done primarily through fiction, because the old saying is, monkey see, monkey do. And we emulate what we see, especially when it's done in a typical hero and heroine form. The male will project himself into the hero's part and identify with the hero character, and the female, at least in the old days before uh, all the vast uh, estrogen stuff in their food and so on and inoculations, the females used to um, look towards the heroine. This is an ancient, ancient science. Alan Watt, venturing into the very, very, very old history of predictive programming and culture creation. Well, at this point, perhaps it's beneficial to start analyzing some specifics, trying to get some idea of how this can be used and how it can be done. And of course, we've already looked at examples like slipping flu vaccine propaganda into 30 Rock or slipping climate change propaganda into every Fox show. But there are, of course, institutional ties between Hollywood and the corporate powers and, of course, the government, which has been bought off by those corporate powers, to the point where, of course, they start to meld and fuse, and it's difficult to extricate what was a Hollywood production from what was a production of, say, the U.S. military. And, of course, the ties between the Pentagon and Hollywood have been well documented in the past. So today I'd like to turn to an article that was featured on globalresearch.ca from January 22nd, 2009, a very excellent and well-researched article entitled Lights, Camera, Covert Action, The Deep Politics of Hollywood by Matthew Alford and Robbie Graham. And this article is quite lengthy, but I do recommend that my readers go and read it in its entirety by getting it from the documentation list for today's episode as it contains quite a lot of information about the CIA and its involvement with Hollywood throughout the years on productions, everything ranging from The Hunt for Red October and Patriot Games to The Sum of All Fears and Bad Company and Spy Games and Charlie Wilson's War and The Good Shepherd and many other productions, and it goes into quite a bit of detail about the CIA's involvement with those productions. But right now I'd like to read from a different part of the article, and in this passage the authors talk about some more of the various government institutions and the way that they've insinuated their messages into all sorts of media programming. And this comes from a passage from the article entitled, Behind the Scenes. Quote, It would be a mistake to regard the CIA as unique in its involvement in Hollywood. The industry is in fact fundamentally open to manipulation by a range of state agencies. In 2000, 
It emerged that the White House's drug war officers had spent tens of millions of dollars paying the major U.S. networks to inject anti-drug plots into the scripts of primetime series such as ER, The Practice, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and Chicago Hope. Despite criticism for this blatant propagandizing, the government continued to employ this method of spreading its message on drugs. The White House went to Tinseltown again the following year when, on November 11, 2001, a meeting was held in Hollywood between President Bush's then-Deputy Chief of Staff, Karl Rove, and representatives of each of the major Hollywood studios to discuss how the film industry might contribute to the War on Terror. Jack Valenti, president of the Motion Picture Association of America, said with a straight face that content was off the table. But Rove had clearly outlined a series of requests. It is hard to gauge the consequences of the meeting, but a Rambo sequel, for instance, was certainly discussed and duly produced. Similarly, several series with national security themes emerged within a short time of the meeting, including She Spies, 2002-2004, and Threat Matrix, 2003. The meeting was, in fact, just one in a series between Hollywood and the White House from October to December 2001. On October 17th, in response to 9-11, the White House announced the formation of its Arts and Entertainment Task Force, and by November, Valenti had assumed leadership of Hollywood's new role in the War on Terror. As a direct result of meetings, Congress sought advice from Hollywood insiders on how to shape an effective wartime message to America and to the world. In November 2001, John Romano, writer-producer of the popular U.S. TV series Third Watch, advised the House International Relations Committee that the content of Hollywood productions was a key part of shaping foreign perceptions of America. On December 5, 2001, the powerful Academy of Television Arts and Sciences convened its own panel entitled Hollywood Goes to War? to discuss what the industry might do in response to 9-11. Representing the government at the meeting were Mark McKinnon, a White House advisor, and the Pentagon's chief entertainment liaison, Phil Strubb. Also in attendance, among others, were Jeff Zucker, president of NBC Entertainment, and Aaron Sorkin, creator and writer of the White House drama The West Wing, 1999-2006. Immediately after... Sorkin and his team set about producing a special episode of the show dealing with a massive terrorist threat to America entitled Isaac and Ishmael. The episode was given top priority and was successfully completed and aired within just 10 days of the meeting. The product championed the superiority of American values whilst brimming with rage against the Islamist jihadists. End quote. Once again, it's difficult for the average person who's simply flipping on the boob tube for a night's entertainment to possibly comprehend the massive amounts of money, time, and energy that vast organizations, industries, and governments are spending to use that entertainment to program you to go along with certain political agendas. Indeed, it's almost mind-boggling to contemplate and, ironically enough, perhaps this was best articulated in a movie from 1976 called Network. 
You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it! Is that clear? You think you merely stopped a business deal? That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back! It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It is ecological balance. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multidollars, Reichmarks, rims, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? You get up on your little 21-inch screen and howl about America and democracy. There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and AT&T and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide, and Exxon, those are the nations of the world today. Well, certainly that is as strong an indictment of the current system of corporate control over everything, including, of course, media programming, that one could hope to find articulated in a mainstream media program, like a major Hollywood movie, like 1976's Network. So wouldn't that seem to fly in the face of the idea that, in fact, all of our programming is really controlled by a few manipulators at the top for their own political purposes? Surely they wouldn't let truth like that slip into their own narratives, would they? Well, perhaps they would. Uh, once again, I'd like to turn back to Alan Watts' blurb from November 23rd, 2006, to get some more information about his take on predictive programming and how these programs sometimes contain what is known in occultic terms as the revelation of the method, whereby truths are revealed to the viewer, whether they're even aware that they're being revealed or not. And in that way, people can be programmed, desensitized, or even, dare I say it, inoculated against the ideas which are being presented. Once again, for a better articulation of this, let's turn back to Alan Watt. So what I'll concentrate on tonight are a few movies which have been very telling in their information and their understanding of the system, and also 
as always, you have your predictive programming because in the, the revelation of the method in high esoteric circles, you can also put in there an, an, an idea of inevitability as well. It familiarizes us with an idea so that when it actually comes into place, we accept it without question as somehow being normal. I'd like to talk about the movie called Network, which came out in 1976. A story about a guy working as a TV anchorman who gets a kind of messianic brainstorm one day and starts telling the truth to the public. And one of his statements is, he says, you're the real people to the audience. We're fake. When he realizes that the audience are trying to emulate a fiction, because everything you see on television is a fiction. It's directed, it's produced, it's not spontaneous. Uh, guests, when they're on a question-answer show of any kind, uh, have the, the pre-planned questions there. I watched uh, a little blurb about uh, Kissinger and found out when he came to Canada that his, his, the guy who manages Kissinger, and they're, they're all managed too, um, had put a, a, a suggested set of questions that they could ask Kissinger and anything not on that list would simply not be answered, and they, or they can walk off the set. There's nothing spontaneous on television. Everything is produced as fake. It's fake. It's an essential arm of controlling your mind. Always has been. But in the movie Network, as he has these convulsive fits, and then comes out with these messianic announcements in a comical fashion, um, he says a lot of truth, and eventually he's called up to see one of the big boys, one of the big guys who run the system, who runs it. And uh, the guy tells him, he says, that there is no America. He says, everything is just one vast corporation, an association of corporations. There's no, there's no Britain, there's no America, there's no Holland, there's no China, there's no Russia. It's just one conglomerate group of corporations. Money runs the thing. And that was true. That is true because that's how it is. So once again, even in a movie like Network, which does go so far toward exposing the actual underlying system and exposing so much of the truth about that system, may in the end ultimately play into the hands of those who are running and puppeteering the system. Again, there is a sense of inevitability that happens if we are subjected to something in a fictional form before it ever occurs in real life, or before we are led to understand it in real life. One example of that, and how that can play out, is something like the Lone Gunman pilot episode, which we've talked about before on this podcast, but of course is worth looking into for anyone who hasn't looked into it whereby, of course, about four or five months before 9-11 happened, there was a pilot episode of the spin-off of The X-Files in which a rogue government agency and certain members within that rogue government agency decide to hijack a commercial aircraft by remote control and ram it into the World Trade Center in order to start wars in the Middle East for profit. 
again, five months before 9-11. And of course, there are those who would think that that was all just one strange coincidence. But then, of course, we have Dean Haglund telling Alex Jones that, in fact, the writers for the series regularly conversed with CIA and got some of their ideas for storylines from CIA. So again, we see some very strange things. Why would these things be put into the media beforehand? Well, of course, it could always be someone, a white hat on the inside, trying to get the information out. Or it could be part of the revelation of the method, a sense of the inevitability of these events. Or, in another way, it could also be used to smear those who actually attempt later to come up with such theories. Oh, I saw that on The Lone Gunman. You must be one of those crazy conspiracy nuts. So, again, there are a number of different ways that that can happen. And on other aspects of revelation of the method or predicting 9-11 in predictive programming. We've, of course, also mentioned the Long Kiss Goodnight, which was featured in our Welcome to 9-11 Truth documentary in episode 31 of this podcast. And, of course, there's also a there's a string of 9-11s that pop up in a number of movies, and I'm sure many of you have seen some of the YouTube videos seeking to bring attention to them. And I think, ultimately, that's questionable, and whether that actually indicates prior knowledge of any actual event or whether that is just coincidental. But certainly I do find one compelling, and that's the Matrix and, of course, Neo's passport, which is shown on screen for a barely a fraction of a second. Well, if you actually freeze that and turn it upside down, you can see that Neo's passport actually expires on September 11th, 2001. Again, just a very strange coincidence. Well, certainly we do know that there is much manipulation of the media for these political purposes, and perhaps there are such things as the revelation of the method by which even truths are sometimes exposed through the media, even by people who genuinely believe they're doing a service by exposing that information, but in fact are just inoculating the public against that truth so that when it is finally revealed, they will not think it is so abnormal. And of course, that's something that the entire truth movement has to deal with on some level. Because of course, there's always the possibility that even shows like the Alex Jones show or even, well, why not? The Corbett Report are allowed to thrive and continue because they are inoculating the public to this information. Well, of course, that gets into meta-strategy and is perhaps left for each person to contemplate in their own way. But it is time, I think, to start taking a look at some of the more occultic and strange aspects of the predictive programming. Because, of course, media programming can also be used to act not only on our conscious mind to shape our political beliefs or uh, what we believe on certain agenda issues, but also to shape even our subconscious mind, because, of course, the media does affect us in very basic ways, ways that simple information or facts could never do. And when we're subjected and submersed into a fictional world, we can take on all sorts of subconscious uh, understandings that perhaps we wouldn't in any other form. So, at this point... Let's turn to one of the most phenomenal works of the human imagination ever produced, and yet one which perhaps ultimately is predictive programming in some form or other, 
Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey. I know I've made some very poor decisions recently. But I can give you my complete assurance that my work will be back to normal. I've still got the greatest enthusiasm and confidence in the mission. And I want to help you. Yes, 2001, A Space Odyssey, certainly a work of incredible genius. And indeed, of course, Stanley Kubrick was a master of his craft, and indeed a luminary of the silver screen, and someone who I suppose was worthy of guiding the stars, which in turn guide us. And of course, yes, I am using my choice of words very carefully here, but I think you probably get the idea if you have any clue about this. But um, if not, let's start delving into some of the esoteric or occultic aspects of this work. And to do so, I think, of course, I would be remiss in my duties if I did not at this point turn to Bill Cooper of The Hour of the Time, Of course, Bill Cooper died shortly after 9-11, which he, of course, had predicted, as we outlined in episode 70 of this podcast. And, of course, he was best known for his uh, shortwave radio program, The Hour of the Time, which ran for many years. But in 1993 and 1994, he came out with the Mystery Babylon series. And it's a series of lectures just so startling and amazing in its scope and breadth and detail that I couldn't really do justice to it in any brief synopsis other than to tell my listeners that if they are interested in the Corbett Report and the types of issues we are covering, I can't see how you wouldn't be interested in Bill Cooper's incredible Mystery Babylon series and all of the incredible information contained therein. So I would direct listeners to check that out, and of course we'll provide documentation in the documentation section for today's episode. But right now, let's turn to the very first episode of the Mystery Babylon series, entitled The Dawn of Man. The Dawn of Man actually starts out with an incredible work of textual evaluation of the 2001 Space Odyssey opening scenes. And in fact, it's a shot-by-shot 
evaluation, description, and interpretation of those scenes, which show a profound understanding of Bill Cooper of what was going on, but also a profound understanding of Stanley Kubrick of some of the ancient mystery religion, occultic, esoteric aspects. And again, this is not something that's easy for me to articulate in a brief synopsis. And unfortunately, the shot-by-shot, scene-by-scene analysis, which Bill Cooper does, is a bit lengthy and runs almost to half an hour, and is thus just really too large for me to play in its entirety, and way too important and detailed for me to play any representative excerpt. So once again, I'm going to encourage all of my listeners to go to the documentation section and find the link to The Dawn of Man and listen to that for themselves, as it truly is a breathtaking work of incredible textual evaluation on the part of Bill Cooper. But we will be listening to an excerpt from the second half of the inaugural episode of the Mystery Babylon series, the second half of The Dawn of Man, in which Bill Cooper talks a little bit about 2001 and the latter half of the movie and the meaning, the esoteric meaning, not the exoteric meaning. And of course, by exoteric, we mean what is there to be seen for the uninitiated or for the masses or for the profane, as they're known in occultic circles, but to the initiates or the luminaries or the illuminated ones who understand the Masonic symbolism and all of the occultic ritual and things that are represented on the screen, there is an esoteric, that is to say, a hidden or occultic meaning to what is being displayed. And Bill Cooper is, at this point in The Dawn of Man, describing a little bit about that esoteric meaning of the ending of the 2001 Space Odyssey. Let's listen to Bill Cooper from the Mystery Babylon series of The Hour of the Time. Now the journey from the moon to Jupiter is significant. For the astronauts on board this spaceship represented the entirety of the human race. And it represented that some will evolve and those who cannot will not be allowed into the future. You see, this was a message from those who rule to all of the initiates of the world. It was a message that the new age is now dawning. And you see that at one point during this journey from the moon to Jupiter, man represented on a microcosm by the astronauts making this voyage came in conflict with their own technology. The technology of the human race was represented by the computer called HAL. And for those who were intelligent enough to experiment with the name HAL and progressed the letters one forward in the alphabet from what they were in the movie, H became I, a became B, and L became M, and they were able to see that the symbol was of the largest at that time when the movie was made, 
and the corporation that was on the cutting edge of computer technology, IBM. It was significant that man had built this technology, this computer, which had an artificial intelligence and was capable of communicating with the astronauts, and yet they had forgotten to put a switch in the machine which could be turned off at will. Now, you have to understand that this is all symbology. Hal represented many things. He represented the atomic bomb, the hydrogen bomb, chemical warfare, bacteriological warfare, represented the state of the art of technology where it became so complicated that no one man could be an expert in it and thus might unknowingly participate in the building of a technology which could destroy him yet he only worked on a part or a portion of it the knowledge of which did not indicate to him that the end product could be a danger and we see that happening now don't we where everybody has to specialize in one small portion of technology because the overall picture is so complicated and so far beyond our understanding that we see the prediction made in the movie 2001 actually becoming true before our very eyes just in my lifetime I've seen automobiles that I could take apart and put together blindfolded myself as a teenager to driving automobiles that I can lift the hood and not even recognize most of what I'm looking at except that I know that it's an engine in there and I know that it's got a fuel delivery system and some kind of a system that ignites the fuel but the technology has surpassed my ability to take it apart and put it back together again without many months or years of specialized training and this has occurred across the board in our technology and as I've told you before I will tell you again tonight dear listeners in secret whatever you perceive as the state of technology in the public eye the very cutting edge in secret they are a minimum of 50 to 100 years ahead to the point where science fiction is no longer fiction and hasn't been for quite some time but is in all actuality science fact you saw this battle play itself out on board the spaceship where ultimately there was only one astronaut left fighting the battle against Hal and he was able to make this jump in his evolutionary consciousness and he was able to fool Hal and turn off the computer but when he did so he knew that he had relegated himself to permanent separation from his fellow human beings back on earth 
And folks, the message was not that he went into space to effect this separation. Space was just the vehicle through which it was conveyed in the movie. The message was that the new man will go into the future and the rest of us will perish. We will not be allowed into the future. If we are, it will be as slave labor until we are no longer useful and then we will simply be exterminated. The message to the vast army of initiates in the mystery school was we are on the threshold of the new age and into this new age will march only one one man it is the new man it is the illumined man it is the man that is able to make the evolutionary jump to no more war to no more rape no more pillage to the level in the mystery school known as 666. Once again, William Cooper and the Mystery Babylon series from the Hour of the Time. Now, of course, that is just a short sample of just one of the episodes of that series and is really only the equivalent of sticking one's pinky toe into this type of research. So, of course, I would encourage everyone who is interested in the foregoing to go and go to the source directly and start listening to that series for yourself. But to return both esoterically and exoterically back to the world around us, there are, of course, many, 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 many more things that need to be said on this subject. In fact, the amount of things to be said on this subject is pretty much mind-boggling. So, I would, of course, at this point, like to interject with such things as Julian Huxley, who we, of course, remember as Aldous Huxley's brother and the grandson of T.H. Huxley, and related, of course, to the Darwins and and all of the inbreeding eugenics shenanigans of that crowd. And how he was, of course, the head of UNESCO, and in the founding document of UNESCO, how he wrote about propaganda and how the media would have to be used to condition the public through propaganda, which he said had been unfortunately tarnished through misuse. But people would have to be conditioned to accept world government through propaganda, we could talk about many other such admissions from people's own writings and own words, but I will leave that for you to start exploring on your, on your own, and I would like to submit my own humble contribution to the research of predictive programming, which of course draws heavily on the research of all of those researchers before me, like Alan Watt and William Cooper. But my own research is continuing, and I have just released the second installment in a video series which I started quite a long time ago. My regular listeners might remember many months ago I released a part one of Film Literature and the New World Order about Blade Runner. And that was a very popular video, and I think it did present that information quite well. And I have finally released the second installment in what I imagine will be a very lengthy series of such videos. And that is currently, as I speak on Sunday, May 31st, 2009, up on the front page of CorbettReport.com, 
Of course, I will put a link in the documentation section to both the Blade Runner video and the new Brave New World installment of film literature in the New World Order. And you can look forward to many, many more installments to come as there is really no lack of examples of the New World Order agenda being promoted and, in some cases, revealed through the media. So, of course, listeners are encouraged to continue their research into today's topic by starting at the CorbettReport.com homepage and looking at that new video. And if you enjoy the video, of course, you can always help by spreading the word about the video. Once again, there's much more to be said and much more work to be done on this subject. And I would highly encourage my listeners who are so inclined and so able to start their own research into this and to actually start producing their own work in researching this type of information, whether that be articles or videos or whatever you're able to produce. Because this, I think, is an extremely fruitful way of spreading the message about the New World Order, since it's something that most people can relate to very easily. Of course, everyone enjoys television and movies and music, so if we can relate this information and show how it does relate and how it is manipulated, we have a chance of reaching an entire segment of the population who otherwise would never hear this message. So once again, I will leave at this point for you to do your own research. But let's end today with a final word from Alan Watt, a researcher who I would once again commend to my listeners on this subject and, of course, many others. That's it for today. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of The Corbett Report. And I'm asking you to join me again next week for episode 89 of The Corbett Report. Meet Donald Rumsfeld. We are run by a system, an occultic system, by sciences which are still passed on through certain families and through archives. The real histories and the methodologies, the science of how our minds work and how our minds can be manipulated throughout our whole lives. A science kept to a few that put Freud in the kindergarten category. And one can only read the ancient Greek philosophers to get a whiff of that because they were way, way beyond Freud with their techniques. As I say, this is a, this is a big, big topic to go into and I'd rather have done a a worked out series rather than just a spontaneous blurb but there are so many things to do at the moment so many things to be done and time is getting short for everyone as we race along to totalitarianism which is all around us now at least in law and the mechanisms to enforce it are all up and ready. It's not a pretty thing to contemplate, but we must look at what is there in order to come through. And in all ages, there have been a few who come through, a few with memory. And memory is very important. Let's make my witness. Very important. Good night from me. 
I'm a dog, Hamish. And me, your God, or your dog, go with you. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. Dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street. There's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes. As if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. They're yelling in Baton Rouge. <laughs> 